Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, mantenganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. Well, to give you a quick preview of what I'm going to be talking about on today's podcast, here's a little music clip for you. Now, there's new fun and excitement waiting for you at Disneyland. The opening of a Magic Kingdom's most exciting new attraction, Pirates of the Caribbean. Enjoy a rollicking adventure with the boldest crew of swashbucklers ever to terrify the Spanish main. Bloodthirsty cutthroats attack a sleepy town. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's fight for me. You're in the thick of the action as these three-dimensional pirates dunk the town's magistrate, auction its fair maidens, and set the whole village ablaze. Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's fight for me. Join the fun and excitement of Disneyland's newest and greatest attraction. An entirely new kind of family entertainment. Pirates of the Caribbean. An audio-animatronic experience you'll never forget. See it now at Disneyland. Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, does that give you a hint about what I'm going to talk about? Of course, I'm going to talk about the Pirates of the Caribbean. One of the classic Disney attractions. Something that really was a Walt-originated idea and really one of Walt's last ideas before he uh, passed away. As Walt was looking ahead to uh, Disneyland and what he wanted to do for expansion in Disneyland, he was thinking about some of the things he might bring in. So he had created a section called New Orleans Square to go into some historical type of highlights. And because of the influence the French, the British, and the Spanish had in piracy, it made sense to potentially put a pirate museum somewhere in New Orleans Square. And it was something Walt had in mind all along. Now the issue was he had an idea to create something that was sort of a wax museum. And in this museum, you would have had different pirates that would have been represented through wax figures in different still lifes. So you would have had different things happening. It would have been like a scene from a particular pirate adventure, and it might have been on board a ship or plundering a city or doing something like that. In a way, he was looking at it as sort of a large-scale diorama, where you would look at a pirate scene from different angles, and lighting would come in and light up the pirates in different ways as they spoke and they told their stories and their tales and that, that sort of thing. And it was kind of a clever and creative idea. There were two problems, though. The first was the one that was really insurmountable, and that's that a walkthrough attraction in a wax museum where you're trying to get people through quickly and move large volumes of people through to see something was a bit prohibitive. It was hard to create something that was a still life like that where people would walk through. They'd want to stand there and look at the diorama from different angles at different times, maybe rehear the speech and clog up things a little bit, you know, maybe jam up the works and create a, a log jam where people couldn't get through. So you had to kind of think about how might they create something where people could still get through and people could still stand and watch. Now, of course, there are other ways to handle this. Now, I know I've gone to see the crown jewels in England at one point in my life, and it stands out to me because there were two levels to look at the crown jewels. The lower level, you had to keep moving. You always had to keep moving. You couldn't stand for very long. And the, the uh, guard who was there would keep saying, first level is for moving. 
And uh, the upper level, you could stand and take a look, and you could stand there for a minute. Kind of an interesting way to approach it. So you could do something similar like that, where people would stand and could stand in one place and maybe have to move around on the outside. And you could make it work. But it still kind of lacked that sort of substance. Because, you know, people might stand there once and look at it and hear the story, and that might be interesting, but they might not come back. And it's not really the people eater that he had in mind. And that leads us to the other problem that he had. And quite simply, the problem here is pirate stories really weren't that interesting. So he had his web designers going off and looking into some of the stories of pirates past. Researching guys like Edward Teach and Blackbeard and Captain Morgan, Captain Kidd. And of course, there was a lot of pirate interest that extended out into the Gulf Coast. So you had New Orleans and you had Galveston, Texas, and you had the west coast of Florida that were all hotbeds of stories about pirates, Gasparilla and others that would come in. So you had these interesting tales that were all legend. And it made it kind of tough because as you look at it, you know, you realize that there's Spaniards and there's um, Englishmen and there's Frenchmen and they all kind of fit into different molds. But there was no one pirate. There was no one story that really fit. As you researched it, things started to unravel a little bit. There weren't stories about any great pirates that really held up to any scrutiny. So it would be hard to tell a story about specific pirates and what they did if you can't really piece together the true story. Now, of course, you could continue to evolve the thinking or maybe make it up, but it would lose that sort of sense of purpose. If you wanted to be historically accurate in some way, it would kind of lose something. So you might show one of these pirates standing there, but it wouldn't really tell the right story, and it would lose something along the way. In a way, in the 1930s and 40s, Hollywood had glamorized the whole pirate story and had created all these fake stories about pirates that turned out really not to be true. And for a two-hour movie, that was fine. And you could get into the storyline and talk about the pirates and you know, kind of what they did and their treachery and whatever, but you couldn't really tell a story about a single pirate in a vignette that would really make sense. So that was really the, the bigger issue there, I think, that that kind of became a problem. And if you go out and you study the history of pirates, what you find is that often pirates were at one time merchant marines or others who uh, worked for the navies of different nationalities. And they went off in search of their own fame and fortune for various reasons. So they left the, uh, the navies that they were working with and went off and got their own ships. They'd steal a ship. They'd go off and continue to steal gold and steal whatever. And it was really about being mercenaries and getting money and doing things. And the stories kind of fell apart because it was really about them. Now, they all had their own reasons for doing it. Some of them became somewhat bloodthirsty and did kill crews. And some just stole the money and, and ran, basically. But it's hard to tell where the stories begin and end. You know, some of them were, were really uh, bad people and some of them weren't. And sometimes the navies fought them off and sometimes they chased them to run aground. And most of the pirates didn't live out their lives to the fullest. They went off and they continued to try to plunder and didn't really have much success and wound up being killed. So it's a bit of a problem. It's hard to tell a story like that where it's really kind of interesting. Now, there were some interesting specific stories about pirates, certainly, and there's some interesting subplots and different things. So the Imagineers, the web designers, thought about it some more. It was particularly Mark Davis was one of the critical uh, designers who had gone off and was thinking about it. So Mark would put together all these storyboards and talk about kind of the storyline he wanted to do and talk about the walkthrough attraction. And Walt Disney would come and see him from time to time, and Walt would walk through, and he wouldn't really look at the storyboards. He never really showed an interest in any of the storylines that were being developed. And that's because Walt came to the realization after hearing some of these things that a walkthrough attraction featuring pirates of note was really a problem. It wasn't going to work for what he wanted. You couldn't be marginally historically accurate and keep people moving through the attraction, and it really didn't work for him. So he had a sort of a different take on it. 
So along the way, the idea sort of died a little bit. You know, so here you are, you're in the early 1960s. Disneyland has been open for five or six years now. You still have an empty plot of land where you had planned to put the Haunted Mansion. That's a whole other story with what the plan was for that. You have the empty plot of land where you were planning on putting the Wax Museum for the Pirates. And you realize that this isn't going to work. And you need more something, more weenies, something to draw people in to get them to come into the, to the park and go to that part of the park. Walt and his designers had a very creative idea. And it was to take the Pirates of the Caribbean and take the entrance to the Pirates on one side of the park and actually have you leave the park and go outside and go into another part of the park where there would be a show building that would be a much broader expanse and would allow you more flexibility in the kind of attraction you might have. Now the question was, number one, how do you get people over there? And number two, what would that attraction be? Enter the 1965 New York World's Fair once again. I'm telling you, the New York World's Fair was a seminal moment in everything that happened for the Disney company. It was really one of those times when everything just kind of came together. All the richness of history comes together right there. So the story goes that Walt had been approached about uh, each of the four attractions that he was going to make at the World's Fair. And as he thought about some of the things that he was going to do there, it occurred to him that there were several things he could use in the pirate's type of attraction. Now remember that I mentioned earlier he had talked about a wax museum with still vignettes, and these characters would be still and he would change the lighting on them to make them at least appear that they were lifelike in some way. Well, one of the attractions he was building for the New York World's Fair was Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln. Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln featured an audio-animatronic character, the first one of its kind. It was a fully articulated character that could then represent something more than just simply a wax vignette, because he could move. So suddenly it became much more compelling to tell a story of pirates in a way that really drew in these types of things. So you could really take that wax figure and you could expand it out and make it do something. You could tell a story with it. Maybe he could even tell his own story. That was the first thought they had. Now the other thing was, how do you get people to come through the attraction? We still have the problem of moving people through. If you have them walk through, they're going to stand and look at things for a long time. Disney was already producing and working on an idea for an Omnimover, something that would allow people to come through and, and ride through the attractions. They had that in mind, but they hadn't really tested it out yet. That would come later. So in the short term, they were thinking about what would make pirates work. Enter the It's a Small World attraction. So in a previous podcast, I talked about the It's a Small World attraction and what a short amount of time they had to produce the attraction and get it up and running. And they decided to make it a water ride because that made a lot of sense, made it easier to just keep things moving and get things going. The boats were actually fairly simple to create. They could run them through the, the attraction. They ran at a fairly constant speed, and you could really move people through. Once they had proven that technology out and figured out that they could get people moving through there, it became a very easy idea to say, hey, Pirates of the Caribbean, how would that work as a water attraction? They are pirates after all. They should be on the water, so it makes a lot of sense to have them be on the water and make it a water attraction. And you could use some of the technology that you created for the It's a Small World attraction to use in the Pirates. And the idea was born. So there's the, the two basic things that they came up with that solved for both of their big problems. Now they had the, uh, the approach that they could use to actually make a Pirates of the Caribbean attraction that might be compelling and might be more story-oriented rather than being simply about pirates and their small vignettes and not really telling a cohesive story. Now you could tell a cohesive story about pirates sacking a town or pirates marauding or something. So it became sort of a, an idea that, uh, that they came up with that they could take this and take it a lot further and make it much more interesting. 
And this is where the WAD designers really earned their keep because they came up with something that was more creative, more interesting, and more forward-thinking than any attraction had ever been in the past. You're taking all these pieces from different things and you're putting them together to make something that was really remarkable. And it became something that was really quite intriguing when they came up with the idea. Now the decision to actually build a show building outside of the berm, so Disneyland is inside a small area, and they, they own some extra property in the outside of Disneyland. And the, the decision was made to actually build the show building on the outside. And, you know, I talked about that a few minutes ago, but that really was no simple decision. They had started building some of the things that they anticipated needing for the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction before they got into the World's Fair. So they had already cleared out some of the land under the berm and started to build in some of the things they wanted to do. But when they realized that they needed something bigger and they needed to go outside the berm and they really needed to build a big show building where they could have a lot of space, they had to redo everything. And it really made things difficult because uh, Joe Fowler, who was the, one of the uh, physical architects of the, of the park, had to go back and pull out some steel and, and going to have to restart and do this again. And that made a very, very interesting decision because Joe was very adamant about the things he was doing. You've heard me talk about Joe Fowler before. He was one of the architects of Disney World as well. So asking him to kind of redo something that he already spent a lot of time and effort on was no easy decision and uh, no easy discussion, I'm sure. So that must have been a really interesting time. You've got laid out now what you want to do with the pirates. You have how you want to get people coming through, but now you need a storyline. And that's where Mark Davis, Claude Coates, and some of the other designers got together and started to figure out how they wanted to tell the story. The first question was, did you want to tell it as a story? more like a movie where you have a beginning, a middle, and an end, or did you want to tell it as sort of vignettes and pieces of story that, that could kind of be woven together into a holistic story that didn't really have a beginning, middle, and end, but really kind of told a story about pirates? That was an interesting discussion that they had along the way to decide how they wanted to do it and what they, what they were going to come up with. So Mark Davis was your main story writer, and he was writing, you know, sort of storylines and story pieces, and you had Claude Coates writing more of the background action and some of the things that were going to come together. You could tell the main story, you could tell pieces to the story, and they all fit together in sort of a cohesive picture. This is what Disney did really well at putting people together to actually do this. So they kind of came up with something that told a story that was a little different. It wasn't quite the beginning, middle, and end, though it kind of is if you look at it that way. The other person you had working on it was Ex Atencio. Now, Ex is another uh, Disney designer who had some interesting ideas. He was an assistant animator on Fantasia, and he had come in, and Walt wanted him to do work on the script for the Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, X had never done a script before, so it was kind of a new thing for him, but he's like, of course, of course, I'll give it a try. After having watched uh, Treasure Island and several of the other pirate movies that came out in the 1930s and 40s and into the 50s, 
he had some ideas on what he'd like to do there. He said once, I think my Spanish background helped me to write the exchanges between the pirate captain and the defenders of the fort. He had that sense of purpose and kind of understood how that scene may have played out in his head. Now, there was one thing that, that needed to come together. They were coming up with the ideas and the showpieces and sort of telling the story, but there was one thing that was still missing, and that was a great theme song. It needed something to really capture you and make it memorable. And that's where Exitensio came in again. Walt always felt that music played an important part to really capturing the emotions. And so he came up with this idea. He said, you know, I want to come up with a, a song that kind of captures the moment. He had assumed originally that the Sherman brothers would do it. You know, the Sherman brothers had written a lot of other attraction pieces for him. But X had an idea in his head, and he kind of shared it with Walt one day. And Walt said, I love it. Let, let's go that route and get it going. You know, X had never written a showpiece before, so he needed a studio composer to help him get it together. So they brought in George Bruns to help him. George had worked on The Ballad of Davy Crockett and uh, several other things, and a lot, over the years he had worked on many other Disney attractions. But uh, this was the first one he had really worked with, uh, worked with someone on to create a true Disney attraction, and it was something that was really kind of interesting. Their, their first approach was a little bit more upbeat and up-tempo. So here's a sample from that original version. became the iconic song for the attraction. Up 
Now, as the show development continued, they had the scenes worked out that they kind of wanted to have in place. They had some of the gags and things that they wanted to have. You know, you think about some of the amusing scenes, some of the things that you think are lighthearted and sort of funny or amusing in some way. Those were all written by Mark Davis. That was his hallmark, was writing those kind of funny things, like the man laying with the pigs. Those things are right up his alley, and that's the kind of thing you expect to see from a Mark Davis production. It's sort of whimsical and kind of funny. Now, as they created some of the other scenes, they started thinking about, you know, what if uh, the pirates came in and they attacked a town, and then they went on and they, they looted the town, and they took some things, and they chased the wenches, and they did whatever. Those kinds of things came up as some of the things that you would generally think of as related to pirates. So that's really where they came up with all the various scenes that they were coming up with. You know, you come in and you, you first go through the fort, and then you work your way into the town, and you work your way through, and then eventually you've got a bunch of pirates who have abducted a couple of soldiers and taken their loot. So it does tell a story in a way, but it's an open-ended kind of story. It goes through a path without having a clearly defined beginning, middle, and end. If you sit there and you watch it, you see how it does begin and end, but it doesn't have a clearly defined part to it. It just kind of has that sort of flow as you go through the whole thing. So it's kind of interesting the way they set up the, the attraction and all the things that were in there. So the next hurdle they had to overcome was how to get you into the show building. Well, the easiest way was to have the load area inside of Disneyland in New Orleans Square. Then they would take you over to the show building. But because you had to go down and under the berm, it made perfectly good sense that the first thing that would happen to you was you would have a show scene, and then you would go over a waterfall. And you would wind up going down and then winding up in the show building. Very clever. It was a, way, a means to an end to get you into the show building. How smart is that? You know, you think about it, it's like that's a very clever thing to have done to get you there. And it really became part of the iconic part of the ride, that you see some things in the bayou, and then you head off and you wind up going down a waterfall, and you're suddenly in the, uh, the pirate story. One other thing they needed to do was come up with the characters of the pirates. So they started mapping out what they wanted the pirates to look like. Part of it was, this was the first time they were doing animatronics, so they started coming up with different faces and facial features that they could sculpt and then create into uh, pirates. So Blaine Davis was the main person who did the sculpting. He did most of the sculpting for Disney Enterprises. There's one story about uh, the man who well, you see in the well that's being dunked, and he was out at dinner one night, and he saw this man that looked really funny, and he actually came home and drew him that night and then started sculpting him the next day. So the story kind of goes that imagine that man going into Disneyland and seeing his own visage up there, uh, as the man's being dunked in the well. Kind of funny. So they came up with the characters and what they wanted them to do. They started designing up some of the show pieces and thinking about how they wanted to do it. The other thing they needed, needed to have was voices. Uh, the voices were going to be important to telling the story because they would be talking to you. These would be talking pirates who would talk back to you as you're going through the storyline. So you think about the scene where there's the fort and the, and the uh, ship that's attacking it. You have the two pirates talking to each other. Then you go into the town and you have the man being dunked. And the man being dunked, he's actually talking and there's a story that's going on there. And you need to have the right voice that kind of encapsulates what that image is supposed to be. And then, of course, you go on to the uh, sale of the wenches, buy a bride today, and you need to have a voice there. So there was a number of different people that they brought in to do the voices. So among the people that they had doing some of the voices were Paul Freeze. Freeze, you would know, of course, is Boris Badenoff. And, of course, the voice of the ghost host in the Haunted Mansion. Way anchor now, you swabbies. What be I offered for this winsome wench? Stout-hearted and corn-fed hey, stouter by the pound? Shift your cargo, dearie. Show them your larboard side. We watched the ready. Belay there, you folks, swab. Oh, the ready. 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 We watched the ready. 
And then you also had uh, Pat O'Malley. He was in The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Rabbit style, go on, Rabbit. Don't be scary. There you go, dearie. Come on, have a nice bone, eh? It's a good lad. Come on now. Exitensio became one of the voices. Uh, you'll hear him in the attraction. Dead men tell no tales. He was the uh, talking skull that used to appear before the main drop. And, of course, there were many others. Uh, there were a lot of other people who voiced parts of the attraction, a lot of people who just played parts in there to kind of fill in things. And then they uh, got the, when they went to record the uh, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me, they got a group of uh, recording artists called the Mellow Men, who had uh, done a number of things for Disney, and they were the ones who actually recorded the song that you hear throughout the attraction in different, uh, different tones and different pieces, but they actually did the recording for, for Disney to get it right. But there was still one more thing that had to happen. They had all of it planned up. They were actually starting production on some of these things. It was 1966 or so, and Walt Disney had been heavily involved to that point in understanding what all the show elements were. But Disney had been sick and been in and out of the office for some period of time because this was near the end of his life. He still wasn't convinced that a ride-through attraction like this was going to work. He wasn't sure that you were telling the right story, that it was going to work the way he wanted it to. So the Disney Imagineers, the Disney designers, got together and had a very clever idea. Let's create a diorama. What we want it to look like, we'll make it in small scale. We'll make buildings, we'll make characters in the buildings, we'll do everything that we need to do to make it look right. And then we'll put Walt Disney in a chair, in a rolling desk chair, and push him through as though he was riding in the boat so he can see what it would look like. And we'll turn him the right way, the way the boat would turn. We'll make sure that he sees all the things we want him to see, and that way he can experience it. So, they made, so according to Mark Davis, we made the model with openings where you could walk in and get a view of the scenes as if you were in the boats. That way you could get the effect of the stage and the ride scenes and decide if they were going to work or not. I worked with Blaine Gibson and his people when they were sculpting the little figure models, and the model pretty much portrayed the way the ride would be built. Walt made suggestions all along the way and seemed to be satisfied with the way the thing was coming together. Now, this scale model gave the ability to make changes along the way and see how things worked. And when they actually sat Walt Disney down in it and he went through the, uh, the piece, he was very happy to see what, he, what, it, what they had come up with. And uh, so it made it really work out, and it all kind of came together. Now, because there's so much steaming going on here and so many things happening, they had to bring in other designers, too. Alice Davis was one of the uh, critical people who helped get the audio-animatronics characters and make sure that they were clothed properly and they looked the part. So the animatronics themselves are just mechanical figures that move with uh, realistic-looking hands and other, the faces and so forth, but otherwise... You, they're covered in clothes, and that way you get the effect without seeing all of the uh, special effects that make them work. Alice was responsible for coming up with all of the costumes and the designs. And so it was really important to come up with them looking right and making them come together. She was truly the costume designer for WED, and she came up with a lot of different things that uh, really kind of fit in with the theme. And part of the reason that it became a beloved attraction was because of the images that you saw. You saw these pirates. Think back in your mind. Just close your eyes for a second and think about the pirates. You can imagine what they're wearing. You can imagine how they look. You can imagine how it would come together. You can think about these characters and realize that it really did work, partly because of the way they were costumed. One of the funny stories that's on a side note here is about how they dealt with the character that was being dunked in the well. Obviously, you couldn't keep his clothes wet all the time, but you wanted him to appear wet as though he was being dunked. 
And so what they wound up doing was trying different things uh, on his body to make sure that ultimately it looked like he was wet as he pulled up. So they wound up com- she wound up coming up with a sort of a kerosene solution that could be on there and would look like water being on his body. And that way it would appear to be wet all the time. His costume would always appear to be wet. Now they had done some special uh, chemical coating with it to make sure that it wasn't flammable, but that was the basic idea. She also talked about the redhead. And the redhead was the toughest one to clothe because they wanted her to look busty. And to make her look buxom as she did, they had to really, she had to come up with some very clever and creative ways to create the costume that looked like she was wearing a corset and kind of push the body together to make it look like she looks today. And she said that was her biggest challenge. You know, throughout her life, that was one of the biggest challenges was creating that character to look just that way. And everybody remembers the redhead, so I guess she did it right. So as they started to build and construct the ride, uh, one of the next things to do was to create all these wonderful animatronics and code them. So they actually came up with a whole method for how they would create the animatronics, record all the animatronic movements onto this tape, then then they could play back and it would repeat the same motions. Now on another podcast, I'll have to go into greater detail on how they did that and what they did, but it was really fascinating that they were able to do that and come up with a way to make the motions repeatable and the mouths would move and they could time it with the music and it all had to match up with what the voices were going to do and whatever. They had this very simple method for doing it, though its simplicity was belied by the complexity that caused it to happen. These designers are really smart and they came up with some wicked smart ideas for how to make it play out and how you could play these tapes together and everything would work and stay in sync. And again, on a future podcast, I'll talk about that in some greater detail, but just suffice it to say for now that they managed to make it work and it came up with something. Now, there is one scene in the uh, show that was really kind of interesting. It's the, uh, last, the nearly the last scene where they're in the fire, where the town has been uh, set ablaze. And there was a lot of discussion about that. There was at least once that the fire department came through and they were doing their fire and safety inspection and they said, you know, you have a fire in here. No, 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 it's not a real fire. It's a fake fire. They were so in awe of the fact that Disney had created a fake fire that they had to go and study it out completely to make sure that it was safe. It's one of those things, you know, might be a partly apocryphal story, you know, may not be actually 100% truth, but it was really well done. And uh, it did fool the fire department as well. Now, by today's standards, it's maybe not as great as it could be, but certainly at the time, it was uh, something, something amazing. So work went on. They built the entire show building. They built it out. It took forever uh, and a day to actually build it out and complete it. It took uh, a lot of effort from everyone to, uh, to get it built. You may have seen uh, Walt Disney on The Wonderful World of Disney showing pirates before he died. And uh, it was one of those things that was really kind of interesting because he really brought them to life and showed the world what he was creating with audio animatronics. Another great opportunity for him to uh, show off his things. We have a special attraction. We call it the uh, Blue Bayou Lagoon. People are going to get on a boat here and ride through the lagoon... And then as they get around here, we're going to take them down a waterfall and take them back into the past, into the days of the the pirates, you know, where the whole Caribbean area was full of pirates and they were always sacking towns and things. You believe in pirates, of course. Oh, yes. Well, now you got into this mess by going down a waterfall. Now, how would you suppose we'd get them out of there? By going up the waterfall. That's right. Anything's possible in Disneyland. So they were, supposed, they were expected to open in March of 1967 with soft opening and then open for real on, uh, in April of 1967. And as luck would have it, everything went smoothly. Well, relatively anyway. They had no major issues, no major concerns, and uh, they were able to open to 
uh, public perception that was, it was really well received. And by the time it had opened fully in April, people were really ready to enjoy it. It's 1967, and this is something truly unique. Nobody's ever seen an attraction like this, not of this scale and this size. And with these audio animatronic figures, it really set a new standard for something that was amazing from the Walt Disney Company. And, and unfortunately, Walt didn't get to see it implemented and opened up for the first time. But he did get to experience it from his uh, chair point of view and uh, get to see the vignettes and got to experience it in his own way. Now, of course, in Disneyland, the ride goes. As you get into your boat, you start off at Lafitte's Landing, you go through the bayou and you see the shipwrecks and different things, evidence that pirates had been there. Sort of representative and evocative of what it would have been like had you been lived in the, uh, in, the, in the Gulf Coast region, say Galveston, Houston, New Orleans, that sort of area, where pirates may have come to, for safe harbor. Now, they call the ship the Bateau, the longboat that you're on. And it's called a Bateau because you're in New Orleans Square, and it makes sense to call it a little uh, boat. So they, uh, they call it that. And as you go along, you're, you're suddenly, you, after you've come through this, uh, this area of these caves where the pirates might have hidden their treasure, you suddenly come across the warning from the skull who tells you that you better be careful, there are rough waters ahead. And that's when you go over the waterfall. As you continue along, you go through Dead Man's Cove and you see what's there, and then you, you look at the uh, Hurricane Lagoon, where there may have been a hurricane that had washed these ships up. And then you go to their cruise quarters and you see what the crews might have lived like. And then you go to the captain's quarters and you see the captain laying as a, as a skeleton in the bed. And by the way, in that particular scene, on the headboard, the skull that's on there is an actual human skull. It's the only one in the attraction in any of the attractions worldwide. But that one happens to be a real skull. And then you go on to the treasure room and you see all the uh, treasure that's there. You go to the ghostly grotto. Then you go to bombing the fort. And then it's the familiar to everyone who, worldwide. You go to different pieces of the well and then the auction. And then the, uh, the chase where you, the pirates are chasing the women. And then, or now, it's the women chasing the pirates. And then you go to the burning town. Then you see the jail and then the arsenal where the, uh, where the pirates are. So that was the Disneyland version. And if you're familiar with the Disneyland version, it makes perfectly good sense what I just said. If you're familiar with the Disney World version, like I am, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And that's because when Disney World opened, the Walt Disney Company decided that because Disney World was in Florida and pirates were well-known in Florida because you're near the Caribbean, that it wouldn't make sense to have a Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. But by about 1972 or 3, uh, after the park had been open for a while, it made for an interesting discussion because people would come up and say, where's the Pirates attraction? People expected it. So there really was no intention to create the same attraction in Disney World. It just didn't make sense. And as you look back on it now, you think to yourself, wow, that was an interesting decision, but they really wanted to differentiate what Disney World and Disneyland were. But Disney finally gave in and decided that they would make a Pirates of the Caribbean in Disney World. They would change it slightly from what the original was because it didn't make sense to have a New Orleans square in Disney World and start from that area because you're so close to New Orleans. So instead, what they created was an Adventureland type of attraction that made it work. And they opened the uh, Walt Disney World version on October 1st of 1973. So it was two full years after the park had opened that they put uh, the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean there. And it really was a slightly different attraction. A lot of the scenes were reused, but the flow was different because you obviously weren't getting on in the bayou and you weren't going along. So you started off basically in the Pirate's Cave, you saw the hurricane room, and then you went down and then immediately saw the, uh, the, the bombing the fort. And then the storyline kind of went along. You didn't see the crew's quarters or the captain's quarters, and the treasure room got moved to where the armory was. So it kind of fit a little bit differently, but the storyline was more or less the same, What the story they were telling. And so it became a slightly different attraction in Disney World. 
Now, it's really kind of neat because when you think about it, they really are the same attraction. A lot of the same audio animatronics are used. A lot of the same features are there. You know, the things that they say are more or less the same. They reuse the audio. So it kind of fits. They were able to basically clone a lot of what they did in Disneyland over in Disney World. That's how they were able to get it open that quickly. But it really was a sort of a different attraction. Now, by the time they got around to making Tokyo Disneyland, they modified it a little bit. They went off a little bit differently, and they started the uh, storyline a little different. And then by the time they got to well, what, what was uh, Euro Disney or Disneyland Paris, they rethought the entire attraction. The entire thing was changed. They changed the concept to be that you're actually in the jail to start with, and there's an explosion that takes you out of the jail by going down a waterfall, and then you go through the entire attraction, and then there's another waterfall that happens later, but there's more interaction, there's more pirates, there's more things happening. It's more marauding. It fits better with the European mindset. You know, there's a little more, as I said about the uh, Phantom Manor many podcasts ago, it's, there's a little more uh, interest and intrigue. It was a little more gory and gruesome in a way, and just in subtle ways, but in a way. And so it made a, uh, for a better story. Now, the, basically, the storyline is the same. You're, you're going with the pirates. You're going along through the attraction. You're seeing a lot of the same scenes. It's just slightly different viewpoints on some of the things that are happening. So it's a little more interactive and engaging. But basically, the story was the same. The music is the same. Everything kind of flows the same way. Just kind of an interesting twist on it. So it really is an interesting attraction, and it has a rich history that's tied right back to the entirety of the World's Fair and it kind of fits right in there. And it was the first one that really went in a different direction that Disney had never gone before. I mean, everything else to that point was sort of more subdued, a little more subtle. They hadn't gone big and bold. This was the first time they went big and bold, and it really paid off. It was, it was a beloved attraction. That's why people in Disney World asked for it a few years later. It really was one of those things that just really took off and had a, a life of its own. Now, one of the more amusing things that happened, uh, after the attraction had been out there for a fairly long time, suddenly Disney decided to make a movie about the Pirates of the Caribbean. Now, there had been several rumored movies over the years that they were going to do it, they were going to make something. But how do you make a movie out of something that's sort of a set of vignettes? Enter the idea for the Pirates of the Caribbean movie that actually came together as a, a more scripted storyline about a bunch of pirates who were cursed and were trying to undo the curse. And... You have one pirate who's Jack Sparrow, who's the captain of the ship, who's been ostracized from the ship because of some of his misdeeds, played by Johnny Depp. And they came up with a kind of a clever storyline. I'll admit that first movie was terrific. It was a nice way to kind of sh showcase the pirates and their story and kind of how they got to where they were. And, you know, I thought it was a nice the way Captain Barbosa was, was a part of the story and how Captain Sparrow kind of fit into the whole thing. And it worked. And I liked the way that they brought in uh, the uh, character of Elizabeth Swan was singing a childhood tune she'd know. She was humming it. It was Yo-Ho, Yo-Ho, A Pirate's Life for Me. And it was very clever the way they kind of fit it into the storyline. And Johnny Depp's character, Captain Sparrow, goes, Hey, that's a fun song. And he starts humming it. Kind of fun. You know, it kind of, kind of works. And it makes the storyline work in some way. So the attraction became a movie. Now, the movie had some success, and they made a second, a third, and I think a fourth. I don't know. I stopped watching after the second because I, the second was okay, but it kind of went off the rails for me after that. So it was interesting, though, because it had enough success where they were able to kind of recreate the storyline a little bit in the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction to represent the movie in some way. So they took pieces from the movie and inserted them into the attraction. And the attraction, at first I thought, this is never going to work. But it actually made the attraction slightly better. And it kind of encapsulates the story a little differently. 
and kind of captures the magic of the movie and makes it just a little more interesting. Now, the unfortunate part is that the Yoho A Pirate's Life for me gets compressed to one room instead of being throughout the, the entirety of the attraction. But that's okay. I can live with that because we still have the song that makes it fun and makes it interesting and it still works. Just kind of lost out on that one piece to it. The rest of the music from the, from the movie was terrific and I think it really does work in the, in the attraction. And it makes the attraction that much more interesting. It, it really kind of makes it more compelling in a way. You know, it kind of freshened it a little bit. Uh, not that I didn't like the old one, but this just kind of made it a little bit better. And I'm glad that they did it in some ways because I wasn't sure it was going to work, but it really did. So it's the attraction that became a movie that became an attraction. Kind of one of those funny things. But there you go. That's the backstory of the history of the Pirates of the Caribbean. I hope you enjoyed this tale, this, this spinning of a yarn, this story of pirates. How they really didn't have much of a story, but yet Disney created one that made it really compelling. Well, that's my podcast for this time. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Just ask the web designers in creating Pirates of the Caribbean. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there... Please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, 
one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 